welcome to another episode of the show. My favorite day, the day I record the intro to these shows. And right now it's Tuesday and this is coming out on a Wednesday. So very excited to be in your ears and got a doozy of an episode for you because it's about happiness. Is there anybody who needs less happiness in their life? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't know about you, but uh, to me, happiness is a superpower. It's like a nuclear reactor that we all have in us. And I have always taken the approach that um, you don't do something to become happy, that you are happy and then great things happen. Now, that is admittedly a very tough mindset to keep. And that's why when I was thinking about this topic, I brought on the world expert on the topic. uh, And her name is Vanessa Van Edwards. It's true. She has had an appearance on the podcast before. Um, she's she is a behavior investigator. <laughs> you should hear her talk about this. Is she's got an incredible little story. I think we we touch on it a little bit here, but go back to the other podcast because you really uncorked it. Whatever a behavioral investigator is right now, you might be thinking, well, what it actually is is that she is amazing at unpacking the behaviors that people do, the things that they do, and she does it through data. And through science. So this is not like the science, the study of happiness. This is the science of happiness. And she does this with all kinds of different uh, publications and white papers and books. She's written for publications like CNN and Fast Company, Forbes. Um, she's the author of an amazing book called Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People. Um, I was originally uh, introduced to her work around body language and public speaking, where she's an absolute guru. And I have recommended... Um, just different corporations and companies that I have worked with over time or friends that are, you know, founders or CEOs that, that Vanessa come in and run seminars. And she is just an absolute superstar. I'm really, really effective. So likable. You guys are going to go nuts over, over Vanessa. Um, the, the secret of happiness to me, I mean, it's, it's almost cliche, right? It's like the age old question. The reality is that we all are on this journey. You know, that's part of why I wanted to uncover this topic today. Um, and I just assure you that Vanessa is masterful in in her research back approach that is is going to help you grok this unwieldy, if you will, topic. Um, just a couple of examples from the episode. In, in, in her study, she found that 45% of people say uh, that their largest feeling is unhappiness and or being unfulfilled here's the thing if you never prioritize your happiness no one else is going to right so it's not a it's not a stretch to think that that many people could report a lack of being fulfilled or a lack of happiness because i don't know that many people that prioritize it honestly it's like folks that are really into podcasting and personal development i can i can see that but there's so many people who aren't that that's why I think this this show is going to be extra. It's going to be an, uh, something that uncorks this uh, a new way of talking about it to those friends who might need an extra bump. Um, we also I found it really interesting to talk about uh, when she talks about the uh, the when then mindset, right, and how that is just a total losing thing. When I lose ten pounds, I'll be happy. When I get the new camera, I'll start my you know my photography project. When I so this when then mindset. Not only is that uh, not a pattern for happiness, but it's actually a pattern for being disappointed. It's almost like, you know, that that far off quote someday. Um, 
she talks a lot about you know being our own buzzkill, how our brain is wired for negative bias. That's uh, you know, you've heard me talk about this a lot, how, you know, we have this two million year old evolutionary organ in our head called our brain and how it's not there to to make us happy. It's there to make us survive and, and how largely a lot of the things in our field of view today, um, they unnecessarily create anxiety because they're not the true threat that we perceive them. That's just that brain. So we have to get our brains working for us. And Vanessa is a master at helping us rewrite it and you can literally rewrite your brain so right now if you're in a negative orientation or mindset it's possible to master that mind and overcome it with simple tactics and and vanessa covers that um now so she came and gave a talk in the creative live studios and what i have managed uh for you today is that she does reference some materials um, and we've made those materials available for you for free. If you go to Creative Live and just search her name and the power of happiness, that's where we have you know uh, pulled some of this conversation today from that. And the materials will be relevant if you choose to go deeper. They're free and they're just there for you. The class would be extra, but again, the materials are available at uh, creativelive.com. And then if you search again, her name, Vanessa Van Edwards and happiness. Um, all right, so I'm gonna get out the way. I hope you enjoy this. Does everyone, we all need a little more happiness in our lives, right? That's the truth. Uh, I'm out the way. Now here's a quick word from our sponsor before we get started. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is sponsored by Creative Life for Business. This is different than the regular old Creative Live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or, or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world all on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. Today, I'm going to dive into the puzzle of happiness. Now, happiness has always been one of these topics that's kind of confused me. And the reason for this is because there is a happiness puzzle I want to talk about. This is, if you ask most people, what do you want most in life? Most people will tell you that they want happiness. If you ask most people, 
what do you most want for your children? Most of them will say, oh, I want them to be happy. I want them to have the happiest possible life. But when you ask people, what are you doing to get more happiness? Or how do you get more happiness? This is when the answers start to break down. Happiness is something that we think about a lot. We talk about it a lot. We want it so badly. But when you actually think about how do we get more happiness, what does being happier mean, that's when we start to get a little bit fuzzy. So I think that happiness is sort of this concept that we all have in our minds, but we don't exactly know how to define it. My goal in this course is to bring clarity to happiness. And I want to start off with a little bit of a question for you guys. This is going to start to clarify our happiness. So at home, I want you to also think about your answer to this as well. What is your biggest source of happiness? The choices are, of course, there's no right answer. It's just for you. Your friends, your partner, a hobby, your family, your career, or unsure. So what we did is we've taken a lot of these questions and we've polled our readers to find out what the majority of people say. So when we asked almost 300 people this exact question, I'm curious what you guys got at home, this was about the breakdown. So family was actually the biggest one, with pretty even split between friends and a hobby. However, not sure came in second. I thought this was so interesting because, again, when you ask most people what they want, they want happiness. But when you ask them what causes your happiness, a lot of us are a little bit unsure. 22% of people said that they were not sure. So... Most of you know I love studying people skills. And the Science of People, we're a human behavior research lab in Portland, Oregon, and we study all the hidden forces that drive our behavior. Now, I love talking about interpersonal skills, right? We talk about communication and relationships and personality. But I realized that this is only one side of human behavior. The other side to human behavior is the intrapersonal skills, right? The feelings, the emotions that drive us. And after the first few years where I was focused really exclusively on the interpersonal side, I realized that I think I was avoiding the intrapersonal skills. I think that's because intrapersonal feels a little bit too personal. There's some parts of happiness that for some reason make people feel a little bit uncomfortable, like it's going too deep. So the very first thing I did when I sort of started on this happy adventure, this happiness journey, is what I do before every research experiment. And that is I did a giant academic review. So uh, my researchers in my lab helped me gather every happiness study that we could possibly find. And we found about 246 happiness studies from very respected academic institutions and organizations that we felt were okay, legit, very well-researched, great uh, experimental method. So we took all 246 of these studies, and then we did something called the happiness audit. So we looked at these studies, and I tried to pull out usable nuggets, parts of these studies that I thought we could actually use in everyday life that weren't just helpful in the lab. We designed this audit based on the academic research. And the reason we did this is because I wanted to get bigger numbers on some of this academic research. Like what most academic studies, and I love them, but a lot of them are based on college sophomores or seniors, right? It's usually (laughs) psychology students. who are trying to get extra credit. So I'm looking at all these studies, and it's like, got psychology students, got graduate students. And I'm like, how about adults, (laughs) right? Adults in the real world. So we took a lot of the happiness research, put it into this happiness audit so we could get data on real-life adults, right, real-world adults. So there's the first couple questions. We're not usually asked quizzes about these kinds of topics, right? We're not usually asked about fulfillment 
or life satisfaction or moods very often. So what it does is it takes all of your answers and it kind of puts them into an algorithm and gives you a number back. So the reason why we have this audit, it was one, to get a little bit of research into you, but also for you to have sort of a litmus test before and after this course, right? I think it's incredibly helpful to actually quantify happiness. Hard to do that most of the time, I know, but it's really helpful to be able to take the course or take the, the quiz, get your number, take the course, and then see how your answers change. So my challenge for you is take the audit now. It's totally free. Take it now, do the course, and then take it at the end of the course and see if answering those questions feels different to you. I'm pretty sure that it will. Any other surprises or was anyone like, yes, yes, tell me. I'm Andrea. Andrea yes. I thought I was on, I was on 161, so uh -huh, I was on the low close. end of very happy. Yeah. And I thought I would score higher, but yeah. some of the questions were things like, um, like, like how satisfied are you with re achieving your goals? Yeah. And it got me thinking, well, pr I have some pretty lofty goals, so somebody who might not have those types of goals mm. wouldn't necessarily, you know, might say, oh, I'm perfectly happy, but I have more things I want to achieve. Yeah. So it's interesting because when we talk about goals, we're going to learn about the progress principle and that actually greater happiness comes from having really small goals within larger goals. So hopefully by the end of the course, I can, we can maybe change the answer to that question so you're achieving small goals um, in, within your big goals. But um, I think that's interesting that I never even thought about that. Yeah. Vanessa, I thought it was really interesting to, I know because the, for the audit you say, like, don't overthink it. Yeah. Just kind of do what comes naturally, you know, what yeah. the first instinct is. But there are definitely some questions that I started to kind of try to overthink. Do you have any suggestions for people how to like just it, just go with it, go yes. with your gut? Okay, so this is such a good point to bring up, and we should talk about this right now. Um, a lot of the exercises we're going to be doing in this course, both live and at home, I'm going to be encouraging you to go with your gut answer, right, not to overthink it. The reason for this is because with happiness, I found that we often have aspirational answers. <laughs> um, and that's okay, right? Like we, we answer either as the best version of ourselves on the best possible day or the person that we hope to become. And that's great, right? We're going to actually do an exercise called our best for future selves exercise. But for these answers, it's really important that you think about who you are on your worst day. I know that's like a really crazy way to do a quiz, but actually that will help you diagnose things much faster. So when you're thinking about your answers, think about your oh, your crankiest mood, your lowest funk day, that's the answer I want you to give me. Not aspirational answers, not yet at least. Okay, I think that we believe that happiness is something that is bestowed upon us, or it's something that we inherit, or maybe we're born with it, or some of us weren't born with it. I actually believe that happiness is a skill, that we have to work at it, just like we learn a foreign language, or we learn a science, or a math. I think that we actually have to learn to be happy or to press happiness levers. So I'm going to be treating it just like we would do a skill, just like a negotiation skill or a foreign language skill. The biggest thing that stops us up with happiness, and now we're going to start diving into the science, is what I call the when-then mindset. So the when-then mindset, this might sound familiar to you, is when I lose 10 pounds, then I'll be happy. Or when I land that client or job, then I'll be happy. Or when I make more money, then I'll be happy. These do not work. When we have the when-then mindset, we're basically telling our mind, you can't be happy yet. Mm -mm. 
You have more work that you have to do. Just keep pushing happiness and fulfillment and relief and excitement a little bit more into the future and then one day you'll get it. The problem is we end up living our life constantly waiting. And we don't realize that happiness doesn't work that way. Losing 10 pounds, landing that job, making more money often does not bring us happiness. In fact, it is typically the other way around. So I want to flip the script a little bit. Here's what usually happens. We think about all these things that we want, right? So we were like, oh yeah, I want to get professional success. I want to buy a house, got to find a partner. We have this checklist, right? I'm sure a lot of you have checklists in your head of professional or career or life accolades we want to achieve. And we keep moving down the list. Here's the problem is this does not work going across. We don't usually find professional success and then get happiness. We typically find professional success and then say we have to buy a home. And then we still don't go over to happiness because then we have to find a partner. And then we're like, oh no, I still can't have happiness. I have to pay off my student loans. But wait, wait, I can't have happiness yet. I just gotta, I just gotta buy that car. I've been waiting to buy that car, for, right? And so we end up going down the list forever and never making the crossover over to happiness. So there's actually a barrier there. I believe, and this is perfectly defined by this quote by Jim Carrey, that we often choose our path disguised as as practicality, even though it comes from that fear place, that scarcity mentality. And so because we move down this list because we're afraid that if we just take a moment to be happy, it might get us off track, right? So we tell ourselves, gotta be practical, gotta be responsible, gotta be logical, and so we keep moving down the list as opposed to going across. So this is an area that I call your happiness scripts, which are the hidden rules that we have in our head that we've told ourselves will equal happiness. These are little formulas that we've created for ourselves. So I want you to look through these and if you would be open to sharing, what pops into your head when you read some of these? So they are, when blank happens, I'll be happy. Any fill-ins willing to share? Yes. So I've done a lot of work on this yeah. and I've been able to climb out, but I mean, I. I used to fill in anything when anything happens. I, like, or, you wow. know, I, I would be able to put anything in there. I was looking for a different job, a career, um, weight loss, everything. I was just waiting for tomorrow to to be happy. Okay, so yeah. I call that swap sickness. Mm. Okay, so, <laughs> and this this is. I'm so glad you brought this up because what happens is, and it's very similar to that long list is that because we don't exactly know, happiness is sort of a fuzzy concept, we're like, well, I don't feel happy right now when I got that thing that I wanted, so we'll just add the next thing on the list. And so we just keep swapping things in to that phrase and just hoping that it will come sometime in the future. Um, so I'll be happy when I make X more money. Is that an issue for anyone here? More money is sort of a blocker to happiness? Yeah. So I think that sometimes we feel like either money can buy us more happiness or that money will give us more freedom. And there is a certain sense of truth to that. However, as we will learn, more money does not always mean more happiness. If I lost X number of pounds, I would be so happy, right? You hear this all the time when people, we say this to each other. Um, as soon as blank happens, I'll be happy, right? A raise, I find a partner, I buy that car. Here are the myths. Here's the reason why these scripts do not work according to the science. Rich people aren't happier. In one study, they took Forbes 400 richest Americans, and they gave them a quiz very similar to the happiness audit, asking for their happiness levels. They did the same thing with Pennsylvania Amish, and they found that they had the exact same happiness number. 
the 400 richest Americans and the Pennsylvania Amish. So the amount of income level is not usually what dictates our happiness. Pretty people aren't happier. So there was a study that was done, I love this title, Happiness and Despair on the Catwalk, where they studied the prettiest people, literally the prettiest people in the world, supermodels, and they had them do a very similar questionnaire to the happiness audit. And they found that not only are they not as happy as the average American, but they're actually less happy. And they're supposedly the prettiest among us. Winners aren't happier. When they look at lottery winners, they found that, like we hear people say, oh, as soon as I win the lottery, all my problems will be fixed, right? And we all have our own version of the lottery oftentimes in our lives. So lottery winners, a year after they win the lottery, had the same level of happiness from before they won the lottery, right? Which is, usually we think of it as life-changing, but actually it does not change their happiness levels at all. I think that it is easier for us as humans to focus on wealth and career building than it is to focus on happiness building. When I was talking about it being too personal, it is so much easier to take a course or fill out a checklist on our career goals it is much, much harder to focus on interpersonal happiness because that is a fuzzy idea. And so it's actually just easier. Not only is it more attractive and we think it will work, but it feels a little bit safer. So this was definitely a trap that got me in. The professional success checklist definitely trapped me in the very beginning because I just didn't know how to even begin to think about happiness. And this is the reason why I started this work. So for many, many years growing up, I was on the sort of checklist. I was very achievement oriented and I was not feeling oriented. So what ended up happening was I went to high school and college, and the unhappiest day of my life by far was my college graduation. My college graduation, I sat there and I hated my college experience. I did not like where I was going, and I was incredibly confused about why I had chosen this track. And I was on a real corporate America kind of business track, and I realized that I had chosen all of my courses my clubs, my electives, based on what other people told me I should do, what I thought sounded good, what I thought sounded impressive, and I was miserable. That was the very first moment where I decided, I actually told my parents that I was not going to go into corporate America, that I was gonna start my own business. And um, it was the first time that I'd ever decided I was going to do something because it felt good, and not because it sounded good, because it didn't. Right? People were like, you're gonna do what? <laughs> Right? And so this course is very personal for me because it's taken me many, many years to get through very, very sad years that I had growing up. And so I am not one of those people who was born happy. I had to learn happiness. I, had to, I have to practice happiness. I have to work at it. And so if you are born happy, I would love to study you, right? <laughs> come into my lab, I'd love to learn from you. But if you were not born happy, if it does not come as naturally to you, I hope this course will help you because it is, these are the exact tools that I use. I want us to stop waiting, right? I want us to end the when-then mindset. That happiness comes now, we're making it a priority. Here's the good news is that money can't buy happiness, but happiness can make you more money. So if you, I didn't give you motivation enough to want to learn <laughs> happiness. It also, studies show, can increase your income. So here's how happiness works. It, actually, we flip the script around. So instead of all those professional successes coming, on, coming first, actually, happiness increases all of those things. And here's what the science has to say about that. One, happy people make an average of $1,766 more per year than unhappy people. Over the course of 18 months, when they look at um, employees, they found that happiness is the greatest predictor of job performance. 
So when they tracked employees, they found the employees who got improved job performance through 18 months, those also were the happiest employees, right? So there's a relationship between our effectiveness and our fulfillment. This is, I love this one. So they actually tracked teens over 10 years, and they found that in high school, unhappy teens, 10 years later, made about 30% less income. So think about where you want to be 10 years from now, right? Wouldn't you rather be happier and making more money? And happy employees take 15 less sick days than unhappy employees. So also happiness contributes to our health and well-being. When you look at percentage of happy people, we've actually gone down. So even though as our income goes up, our happiness stays the same. And the problem is, is we focus most of our day and energy on increasing our income generating activities, on our business, on our effectiveness, on our productivity. Right, we talk a lot about productivity, and by the way, when I was sitting down to think about my next Creative Live course, I had mentioned in my last course that I was thinking about doing a productivity course. And I was sitting down to think about what did I want to work on next, and I had a whole outline for a productivity course, and I had a whole outline for a happiness course. And I was looking at the two, and I remembered this chart. And I was like, you know, if I had to gift the world anything, it would not be to get more work done. <laughs> you know, and maybe one day I'll do a productivity course, but I would much rather teach someone to be happier. So I think that we focus a lot on productivity and getting more done, but that actually doesn't serve us. I believe that happiness is the cause of success. It is not the byproduct of it. Happiness does not happen because we are successful. Success happens because we are happy. The happier we are, the better we are to our employees and our colleagues, the better we are to our partners, the better we are to our friends. Happiness actually makes us more successful in everything that we do. So the big question now, now that I've hopefully thoroughly convinced you that happiness is important, shall we dig into the actual skills? All right. What do happy people do differently? Right? That's the big question. That's what I wanted to know since I was not one of those people who was born naturally happy. So at the very end, we did this academic review of 246 studies. We created an audit based on these 246 studies. And then we had thousands of responses. We literally had over 10,000 responses to this happiness audit. Hopefully after today, we're going to get up to 20,000 because we can really have a lot of robust data. So we took all of this data and we started to look for patterns. What was the difference between the happiest people and the unhappiest people who took the audit? we found there were significant differences in the way the happiest people, people who got those very high ratings, people who got low ratings, the way they thought, the way they behaved, and the decisions they took throughout the day. And they weren't big ones. Some of them were big, but a lot of them were actually things that were incredibly doable. Here's the thing. No one else will prioritize your happiness except you. Especially if you feel pulled in many directions at home, pulled by many directions at work, no one else is going to decide, you know what? I'm going to make Vanessa happier today. That's going to be my priority number one. So if we keep pushing it off, it will never get slated first. So I want us to start making our happiness a priority. I also believe, and this is when we get into happiness worthiness. So we have all these worthiness prerequisites. And a lot of the times we feel like, oof, focusing on my happiness feels selfish, right? oh, I don't want to focus on my happiness because that means I'm putting other people's needs second. So if you are struggling with this, what I want you to think about is that your happiness is a gift and your happiness is contagious. So according to the science, this is a really interesting mathematical analysis that was done of networks, 
what they found that a person is 15% more likely to be happy if they are directly connected to another happy person. In other words, we tend to congregate around happy people and our happiness helps other people focus on their happiness. So when you are putting other people's needs first and you are feeling stressed and depressed and anxious, that can actually infect them by feeling more anxious and stressed. So when you focus on your happiness, it's also a gift to everyone around you. The next big question, are happy people just born happy? Here's the good news, some happy math for us. So when we look at the happiness research, and by the way, I didn't like math in school, so this is the only kind of math I do like. They found that about 50% of our happiness is genetic. So we are born with about 50% of our happiness set, our levels. About 10% is the environment. So where we live, how we live, the material objects that we have, the people that we are married to. And about 40% is our behavior and our mindset. Now this should be surprising to most of us because most people focus all their energy on the 10%, right? We think about upgrading our car, upgrading our house, moving to a different neighborhood, buying this thing. But actually, that's putting 100% of our effort in something that will only give us 10% return. That is a terrible kind of ROI. So I'm going to be focusing mostly on this 40%. This 40% that's much harder to leverage when we don't have actual skills to do it. I think I want to put 100% effort into something that's going to give us 40% return. It's a much better return on our energy investment. And the way that I've decided to do this, the best metaphor I have for this, is kind of a happiness structure. So if you think about a building, right, the more supports there are in a building, the stronger the roof is. So I believe every skill that you master is like adding one more pillar to that support structure. If we can start with just one or two, that's good, right? That will keep it up. But every time you add a different skill to it, you become stronger and stronger. So every day we'll be exercising a different part of our brain. Are you guys ready to do the first pillar? All right. So day number one, pillar number one in our happiness structure is the now-how mindset. Every day, we're gonna be doing two things when we first start. First, we're gonna start off with dancing, because as we know, dancing improves our mood, makes us more creative, and we're also gonna be doing some kind of a warm-up to get us our juices going for the day. So here's our warm-up for day number one. So I want you to pull out your workbook or a blank piece of paper if you haven't gotten the workbook yet, and turn to pillar number one. Okay, so what I want you to do is very, very quickly is I want you to think of what are 10 things, and you have to pick 10, don't overthink them, what are 10 things that nourish your brain? So let's say that you're in a funk, you wake up and you're like, ugh, I just don't feel good, or you get home from work and you're like, ugh, I just feel like a zombie. What are 10 things you could do to very quickly nourish your brain? And, and, and in the audience, we're gonna talk about this at home, I want you to fill out all 10 if you can. So what are a couple things you guys do? Yeah? Listen to music. Oh yes, we're gonna talk about that I think in day three. I think we're gonna talk about music a lot. What else, yeah? Prepare a tasty meal. Oh yes, cooking, and only a tasty meal, of course, not an untasty meal, yeah, yeah. Uh, go to the ocean. Oh, do you live near the ocean? I live in Vancouver, Canada. Oh, yes, the smell of the ocean. Actually, there's something, and I won't be talking about this in the course, but I'm going to talk about it right now, which is called forest bathing. 
anyone ever heard this term? No. Okay, so um, I think that the ocean air or forest air they've actually found is quite um, restorative. And there's a study that was done in Japan <coughs> where they had people go into a forest and kind of bathe in the forest air, and they found that they had all these um, immune responses, positive immune responses, after they spent time in nature. So going out to the ocean is great. Going into a green space is great. That really is a wonderful way to chemically affect your happiness. Yes? Uh, mine was also going to be both sort of fresh air as well as being by the water, uh-huh. and that's something that definitely nourishes me. So what's interesting is, is that is talking about the perfect balance between physiology and mentality, right? You're seeing something beautiful, you're feeling very free, and also those things affect your physiology. Any in the bath? Um, <laughs> taking a bath. <sighs> Amazing. And taking a bath is the best. It also makes me go to sleep. <laughs> yeah? Some amazing books. Oh, yeah. Do you read fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any others? Yeah. Listen to music and also take a walk or bike. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I love walking meditations as well, if anyone's. We're going to talk about that in day nine. Yeah. Very similar. I like going for a bike ride. Yes, getting getting those endorphins going with exercise. Do you have any? Connecting with somebody. Ooh, good one. So getting that oxytocin, right, per, interpersonal. People. I love it. Yep. So here's the thing is we just started off with something really positive, right? I had you search in your brain for something that was really nourishing and positive. Even just thinking about those things, by the way, will often produce pleasure. The problem is, is we are actually not wired to think that way. In fact, when I asked you to think of something nourishing, your brain might have done a little that's my That's my sound effect for, like, not working, right? <laughs> Like, a, like, I don't know, whatever you want that sound effect to be. <laughs> um, that is because our brain often falls into what's called a negativity bias. So negativity bias is how we are wired, and it's kept us safe. So back in caveman days, we had to think more negatively to be able to store up food for the winter to protect us against things. So as a caveman, we had all these things we had to worry about. Is there going to be a bear? Is there going to be a storm coming? Will I get sick? Am I going to be hungry? Should I store more food for the winter? Is there going to be a clan attack? Is there going to be a dinosaur? (laughs) Am I going to see a snake, right? There's all kinds of things that could potentially harm us when we are cavemen. So we developed this way of scanning the environment or in our head mentally scanning to think about all the things that could go wrong. The problem is, is as we've graduated from caveman, we've lost a lot of the things that could really keep a, make us have bodily harm, and we still have kept this negativity bias. So we end up with the same negativity bias, but with things that actually don't physically harm us. So we have money problems we worry about. We worry about traffic that might happen tomorrow. We worry about a storm coming. We worry about work problems. We worry about health problems. We worry about people who are mean on social media, or should I have posted that thing? We worry about bills. And so what happens is, is none of these things could kill us, right? However, we worry about them as if they will. And so we are oriented to be constantly scanning for things that might harm us. And that really blocks us. And as I mentioned, this happened to me in bed. This was a huge problem for me where I would keep my days so incredibly busy that I didn't have a moment to go into negativity bias or happiness. I would just schedule myself so that I had no breaks in the day because I was avoiding that moment where I would feel that dread or anxiety. And so what happened was at the very end of the day, by 9 o'clock when I was finally home and done with all my to-do list items, then I would look at my bed and instead of being like, ah, I get to relax, I would think, ah, now I get to worry. 
right? And I would lay in bed and I would think about all those things, my to-do list, my house chores. Oh, I forgot to do that thing. Gosh, I really should be working out more. You know, I really should have said that thing to that person. I really don't know why I said that. And all those bills to be paid. And I would just go around in a loop in my head on these things. And when I started reading about the negativity bias, I realized that I was actually wired to do this. This isn't something that I had developed, actually. This was a way that my brain thought it was keeping me safe. And that made me a lot less angry about it, and that also made me realize that I could rewire it. So I realized this was not a problem that I had only. So I, I had read about the negativity bias. I was thinking about how I could rewire my brain. I didn't think that this was actually something that affected more people. So one of my good friends, we'll call her Laura. I've changed her name to protect her. Um, she went to culinary school for many years. She loves cooking. And I was friends with her all the way through culinary school, and she finally finished, and she was like, I'm going to set up my own catering business. I was like, yay! She's like, yay! So she caught up her business cards and put up her website, and she started to get jobs. And very quickly, I would call her, and I'd be like, Laura, how's the catering business? Yeah, it's good. I got a job, but they're such picky eaters. You know what? Like, it's so far away, these jobs I'm getting. I end up spending three hours driving there. And then I'd call her next time, and it'd be like, yeah, I'm getting all these jobs, but they're just so smooshed together. They're all during the holidays, right? I can't believe it's such bad timing. And they have these banned ingredients. They're allergic to gluten and they're allergic to dairy, and I can't cook anything that I want. And you know what? It's such a small kitchen. I have such a small kitchen. I can't cook anything that I want. I have no room for all of these things. There's traffic on the way to all of my jobs. I'm always running late. Every time I talked to her, there was some reason to be upset with her dream job. This was her dream job. Something she had gone to school for for years. And yet she was finding something negative about every single job. And I realized this was her negativity bias. This was her brain's way of trying to keep her safe. But actually, it was destroying her dream job, her happiness in that job. She even, by the way, complained when jobs were too big or too small. So this is when I finally said something to her. She was like, oh, the job is just too big. There's 40 people. How am I going to cook for all those people? And then she had a job for four women, a luncheon. She's like, oh, it's too small. I was like, so really you can only have jobs that are between five and 25 people in a big kitchen next door to you without traffic, not during the holidays. She's like, and not picky eaters. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I got it. (laughs) Right? So we have to really think about how this negativity bias affects us in all of our different ways. Our negativity bias causes us to find something bad about every good thing that happens to us. Now, for some of us, this is worse than others. For me, this was particularly bad. I'd get something good in my life. I'd be like, oh, but there's that thing about it. Bless you. There's that thing about it I don't like, right? And so it is this way, and I don't want us to get angry at our brains. I just want us to change it. As I mentioned, I am my own worst buzzkill, right? And this is something that my husband tries very hard to get me out of is I'd get a job that I really liked. I'd get some, uh, we'd go on a vacation. I'd be like, oh, but the Airbnb is so small, (laughs) right? And that was my negativity bias, finding something negative about it. So in your bonuses, I want us to diagnose our negativity bias, the extent of your negativity bias. So uh, this is a free bonus for people. So if you have the workbook, it's also in the workbook for you. So this is right on the first page. What I want us to do is I want us to list out the things that you think about, your default mentality in some of the key moments of your life. So what's the first thing you think about when you get up in the morning? The first three things, three to five things. And you can just kind of list those off. How about what does your brain default to when you're stuck in traffic? I want to know what your default setting is. Now, for some of you, it might be positive. If you're thinking about rainbows and puppies, I am so excited for you. I am so excited for you. 
But if you are thinking about all the things that need to be done, your to-do list, I also want you to get really real with yourself on where you default to. We don't want to judge it. We just want to know that that's, that's your default. That's what we're working with. How about you guys? Are you, what do you do, typically think about when you're stuck in traffic? What's your default one? Yes. Just definitely about, am I going to be late? Am I going to be late? Am I going to uh-huh. be late? And then it's, what story can I make up about oh. being late? <laughs> yes. Oops, did I say that out no. loud? <laughs> yeah, ex- absolutely right. How about um, when you're um, getting up in the morning? What's your first few thoughts when you get up in the morning typically? It's okay if you check your email, yeah. I probably didn't get, up, get enough sleep. Okay, so yours immediately goes into scarcity, mm-hmm. right? Did I get enough sleep? Did I have good enough quality sleep? Yeah. Absolutely get that. Any others in your first group? Yeah. I say to myself, I need to breathe. Okay, so a reminder, which is interesting. So that's an activity, an action step. So it's not even a review. It's just breathe. I don't think I do that in the morning. Maybe I breathe a little bit, but not very much. I never feel like I have enough time. Any others? Yes. I feel like my bed is so comfortable. All right. Yay, a positive one. Okay, so you are savoring. That is mm-hmm. perfect for wow. So that is a savor moment. So I want you to think about, is it an action? Is it a savor moment? Is it a scarcity? Is it a worry? Right? What are the different things you're defaulting to? And do not judge them. That's okay. That's just where you are now. Typically, these are the things that I was thinking in the morning. These are a lot of my default thoughts. Is someone angry at me? I, by the way, I always think someone's angry at me. Um, I have this problem where I run through all the people in my life, and I'm like, are they angry with me? Are they angry? I don't know why. That's, that was a default that I've had to work on very much. Can I get it all done? I'm constantly in scarcity mode around time. That's a big one for me. I think a lot of us are. So mine isn't always not, mine does not default to scarcity at money. It's usually time and energy. Am I good enough where there'll be enough money? Did I make a good first impression? Am I thin enough? There isn't enough time. Those are the default ones that I came up with for mine. Um, and they are, very few of them were positive, if any of them were positive. Let's talk about the science of how we fix this. So yes, our brain is wired to be more negative. However, we can rewire it to be more positive. And I actually stumbled upon this with a totally different uh, experiment with a different area. So there was a group of researchers that were researching um, how the brain works. And what they did is they had students play Tetris for five hours straight. (laughs) Could you imagine being paid to do this study? So they brought students into the lab and they had them play Tetris for five hours. And what they found was, and they, weren't te- they were te- looking at the brain, they weren't looking at behavior. Students, after the experiment, reported back to the experimenters that after they left the lab, they began to see the world in falling Tetris blocks. They would walk into their room and want to reorganize their room like Tetris. Or they'd walk into the park and they'd want to reorganize the benches like Tetris. So they would see Tetris blocks falling from the sky. In other words, after five hours of playing Tetris, they had this Tetris lens where their brain started searching for Tetris blocks. So it got me thinking, can we rewire our brain to think more positively if we are playing with happy Tetris blocks? Right? If we are searching for ways to fit happiness into our lives, can we rewire ourselves to think that way? And I call this our very, very first pillar. This is the now-how technique. Training our brain to have a positive bias to find happiness patterns. So retraining, so we're constantly looking for happiness patterns in our life. <clears throat> so I think the biggest thing here is we're training our brain not to wait. So I think that what was happening to me when I was in that real negativity bias is I was constantly waiting for the worst instead of looking for the best. 
I want to turn us, instead of passively waiting for the bad thing to happen, to be actively searching for the good thing to happen. That's a very, very different kind of shift from passive to active. We're going to be looking and searching instead of waiting and dreading. Basically, this means going from constantly thinking about that caveman mentality of what's wrong to what's right. Going from scarcity, what's not enough, not enough time, not enough money, not enough energy, to abundance. I have enough time, I have enough energy, I have enough family, I have enough health. And going from waiting to exploring. Now how mindset is really about exploring. So let's shift all of those mindset things. This is what I've been slowly working on, changing my, my uh, little default sets to what went well. Does this make me feel good? What looks good? This worked really great. I'm proud of the fact that I, there is plenty of. That's what I'm going to be trying to teach us to do. And this is where we get into happiness not being something stagnant. Happiness, I don't think, is a state of being. I think happiness is an activity. It's an action. In the words of John Mason Good, happiness consists in, an act, in activity. It is a running stream, not a stagnant pool. And that is something that's a misconception that I think we have about happiness. I also love this quote. I found this hanging at a yogurt, my favorite yogurt place in Portland, which is also worry is just a waste of the imagination. When I sit and I'm worrying about what I said to someone or there isn't going to be enough of blank, I feel like I'm using all of this precious energy towards things that could never happen or won't actually make any effect. Our brain has so much potential to create things. I would much rather have us put our mental energy towards that. Happiness really is a social beast. It cannot be done alone. No matter how many of these exercises and activities you do, you really cannot complete this happiness journey without involving other people, the right kind of people in your life. This is also about creating a happiness support system, right? Yes, we build your happiness structure and every pillar makes you more supported, but also every person you bring into your happiness structure makes that not just a bare building, but a beautiful home, right? That's the decoration of your building. And lastly, how do we build your happy community beyond just here, beyond your Facebook group and Twitter group at home? So we like people like us. We like people who look like us. We like people who think similarly to us. We like people who have our values. Why? When we find people like us, we tap into this very, very important feeling of I belong, right? Someone is like me. It makes us feel, when we see someone else like us, it helps us accept ourselves more. It actually helps us with self-love. And part of this has to do with oxytocin and serotonin. Oxytocin is that chemical that makes us feel bonded to someone. It gives us actually that calm, everything's okay feeling. So when we have that bond with someone, we're like, I really like them. That's actually oxytocin coursing through your bloodstream. That happens when we find someone who are, people who are similar to us. Serotonin also keeps us calm, gives us that nice, easygoing feeling. And when we're with people who truly accept us, we feel like we don't want to be anywhere else in the world. That's one of the most beautiful feelings we have. So... Here's a confession. This was the scariest and hardest skill for me. This was actually the number one, pillar number one of my happiness journey. So growing up, I had the feeling where no matter what group I was at, whether that was a sports team or a club, that I was the weird one. I always just felt like when I walked into a group, I was talking weirder, I looked different, I sounded weirder, I never said the right things. So what happened was, is I ended up being very achievement-oriented. I would dive into my books, 
I would dive into things I could do, and that made me even weirder, right? So I didn't rush, I didn't join all the groups other people were doing, I never went to parties, and that actually made me feel even weirder. So it was this terrible cycle that I had on myself. So when I finally got out of college on my graduation day, part of that deep sadness that I felt was not only that I had made the wrong academic decisions, but also that I had very few friends that I hadn't built relationships that I looked forward to, that I felt like I even knew people in my life very well. And I found that that was a huge emptiness in my life. So this skill means a lot to me because this one took me the longest to get right. The science is pretty clear on relationships. So Ed Diener, uh, very happy people, great set of research. Social relationships were the most important factor in differentiating happiest people. So in Ed Diener's research of happy people, that was his biggest differentiator between the happiest and the unhappiest. People skills are essential. So when you look at actual people skills, communication and relationships, people with strong people skills are less likely to perceive situations as stressful. Now this one really hit home for me because I realized that when I was lacking people skills, I would go into a situation incredibly nervous. And that was actually a self-fulfilling prophecy because I would go in, I would perceive all of the situation is even more stressful, which would shut down my people's skills even more, which would make me feel even weirder, which would make it more stressful. It was like this terrible, terrible cycle, which is why I broke people's skills down into this science. Because I realized, okay, if I can just focus on a little bit better people skills, maybe the social situations will be less stressful for me. So I had to sort of back my way into those people skills. Another interesting study here, I wish I could remember the exact author, but um, it was a study where they had people look at neutral faces and people who are highly neurotic. So in, the, in Master Your People Skills, we talked about neuroticism. I'm highly neurotic. Not a bad thing on the personality scale. Highly neurotic people see neutral faces as negative. So there was times when I would be with people who were totally neutral, but I perceived them as negative. So also how we read people affects how we feel about ourselves. I was thinking that people didn't like me or were angry at me when actually they were totally neutral. So our people skills can be a back door into it. And of course, we, our connections are capital. I mentioned this very briefly in day one. When um, this is a great book, Connected, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, they did mathematical analyses of our networks. They found that a person is 15% more likely to be happy if they are directly connected to a happy person. Happy people tend to cluster together. Whereas if you look at the mathematical chains in their book, they have these chains of connections. They're all kind of garbled together. Happy people are in these big clumps, whereas unhappy people tended to be at the end of a long chain. So they would have like Sarah knows Joe, Joe knows Mike, Mike knows Dave, and Dave knows Rachel. And Rachel usually had the lowest happiness rating because she was at the end of a chain. It's a very interesting way to look at happiness and our networks. The other thing about relationships is the number of friendships is a great predictor of income. In their study, happy people made an extra $5,000. That's a huge number uh, for just having more friends. Almost like you can think about being paid to have more friends. This is also about worth. I think that when we talk about worthiness, worthiness prerequisites, do we deserve to be happy? Do we deserve success? I think for me at least, I had this idea that I didn't deserve to have people or I wasn't worthy of having really close connections and good friendships. I think that we are, we are deserving of that feeling of belonging. 
Yes, it's hard to get. It's hard to get those people who make us feel like the best version of ourselves, but we deserve to find them. It takes some work, but we deserve to have them. So I came across this concept of a sangha, and sangha is this beautiful term, lots of different uh, variations in different languages. A sangha is a small community of like-minded people who help you be your self, best self. It's actually a Buddhist term. And they talk about these sanghas as very small communities where you can support each other in learning and growth. I think that all of us should have a sangha. And this takes a lot of different forms. And as I started to research the happiest people, and I asked them about this idea, you know, do you have a group of people or a single person who feels like they're your tribe? They're the people who, whenever you're with them, you can say anything, you can do anything, and they know you and your values better than anyone else. Do you have those people? And typically, the happiest people could immediately tell me who, who that was. And it looked different for everyone. It wasn't like they all had the perfect friends group, right? It wasn't like they all had this the perfect sex in the city for group of women, right? That's sort of a, I think, I think all women feel guilty if they don't have it. Not the TV kind of sangha, I mean like a real sangha, and it was different for each of them, but they all could tell me who those people were. So let's talk about how to create your sangha, whether or not you have one already or you think that you can start to work on getting one. Part of this, I actually at the very beginning of the course asked you to find your partner in joy. We are a little sangha in here as we grow and have this momentum together. This one also I love, life is too short to spend time with people who suck the happiness out of you. So creating a sangha is not only about finding the people who nourish you, it's also about detoxing the people who don't nourish you. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about detoxing in this course because I talk a lot about it in Master of People Skills, but I also want you to think about kind of clearing the way, right? There's um, a metaphor that's used a lot where farmers often have to burn all their crops to make room for the new ones. You might not be ready to create your sangha yet. You might have to do a little bit of cleaning first, and that's okay, depending on where you are in that phase. This is what we're going for, the I belong. I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think about when is a moment that you felt this with a single person, with many people? When was a moment where you felt like, wow, like this is my group. These are my people. This is my time. I want you to think about those two words because I think that I belong is the most powerful phrase. I think it's even more powerful than I love you. I think I belong is actually a deeper way of saying love because it's total self and other acceptance. First question on I belong for your sangha. Do you think this has to be new people or do you think that you already have kernels, nuggets of a sangha, seeds of a sangha with existing people? That's the big question you have to start with. So are these formalizing or leveraging, um, increasing existing relationships, or is it about cultivating existing connections? Maybe you have a soft connection with someone, but you want to make it stronger. Last choice, is it about finding new people? These are three very different ways of creating sanghas, right? One is um, leveling up a current relationship. Second is taking an existing relationship, but actually making it something that matters to the both of you. And lastly is about searching or exploring. So three different things. N none of these are right or wrong. I just want you to pick the one that's right for you. So is it like a group where they all sort of know each other mm. too? Or okay. is it? Is, yeah. 
So when we did this happiness research, they were all a little bit different. So I will not define that for you. Like for example, someone said, oh yes, it's my best friend. It's me and my best friend, we are like a unit. That was her sangha, just the two of them, right? Other people, it was like a formalized group of high school friends. They get together every month for pizza night. So I don't don't wanna define it for you. That's why I think that the litmus test for everything is, do I feel like I belong? Right? And if that is a formalized group, awesome, where everyone's involved and knows about it, great. If it's a group where you just go there and you're like, yeah, this is my jam. So I won't define it for you. I think you have to find yours. Here's step one. So if you're not quite sure where you're going to find a sangha, here's where I want you to start. I actually want you to start with a common interest, and this has to do with the science. So science says common interests are the best way to connect. Studies show that each common interest between people boosts chances of a lasting relationship. So every time you're with someone, that common interest that you land on increases your chances of having a lasting relationship. Each common interest brings about a 2% increase in life satisfaction. So our relationships and how alike we feel with people in our life has a direct effect on that legacy, on that fulfillment that I talked about as a goal in the beginning of the course. Now, in my book, I talk about this idea of ties, that when you meet someone and like say that we're like, oh yeah, you know, I I also am from Los Angeles. I was talking to someone who's also from Los Angeles earlier today. Yeah, we were talking about just being from Los Angeles. I was like, ah, me too. That was a tie. That both boosted our percent of life satisfaction by 2%. So every time you meet someone, you're trying to create these ties that tie you together with someone. The more ties you have, the more likely you are to both enjoy the relationship and feel better about it yourself. Ideas, there are tons of ideas for common interests. Sports, hobbies, books, news, being in alumni groups, religion, TV shows, geography, your profession, right? Meeting other people in your profession, common goals like being in this course, political causes, and then we get into some of the ones that we've already talked about in this course. I've given you a couple of common interests that you might not have thought about before. Is there someone you can do happy experiments with who maybe has your same skill levels? Is there someone who has the same skills who wanna exercise those skills in a new way? Is there someone who has a very similar type of happiness and would be willing to go on happy adventures with you? And lastly, is there someone in your cause champion or is your cause champion your sangha, right? Is that in itself can be your sangha. Of course, the Power of Happiness Facebook group. So at home, you have the lucky benefit of meeting all these other happiness students. That might be your sangha, right? Finding someone in your local area who's also taking the happiness course, that could be a great way to sort of start off that sangha. Number two, so once you pick a common interest that you're like, yeah, I think there's something here in this area, I want you to focus on qualitative, not quantitative. So this is not about the amount of people. It's not about the amount of times you meet. It's about the depth of those relationships and having really high quality. Like even if you have a a friend who doesn't live in the same city as you, they don't have to be next door. You might see them once or twice a year, but that time fills you so much, right? So it's not about the quantity, it's about the quality. And of course, the science backs this up as well. So Simin Vazir says, well-being is really, oh, this is actually the name of her study, which I love, is eavesdropping on happiness. Well-being is related to having less small talk and more substantive conversations. So she actually found that what we talk about with people in our life has everything to do with quality, not quantity. You are better off having one really deep conversation once a month 
than a bunch of really surface conversations three times a week. Those do not last for us. They don't give us enough dopamine or serotonin. So I'm curious in the audience and at home, when I showed up that list, what common interest do you want to try? What's sort of what area are you thinking might work for you and your sangha? Any ideas? Any inklings? Love of outdoor. Mm. Yes, and you were talking about how you bring the outdoor inside. And that could be anything, right? Any kind of love of outdoor, outdoor groups. I love it. Or even outdoor partner. Doesn't have to be a group. Other ones. Yes. I like the profession, goals, and mastermind sort of grouping. Yeah, so um, a, a lot of um, my students know that I do awesome clubs. So awesome oh. clubs are my version of mastermind where I find people who are very like-minded in different careers but similar goals, and we meet once a month and have really deep goal-oriented accountability conversations. They're, I call them awesome clubs. So yes, I yeah. agree with you. Yeah. That's rescue Dogs, ah, yes. yes. Oh, I love it. I never heard that one before. Pets and rescue animals. Is that maybe your cause too, do you think, or no? We recently rescued a dog, and yeah. the person um, who, who helped us go through uh, how to adapt a dog said, you just rescued two dogs. And I was thinking, what, two dogs? I just want just one dog. And he said, you allow the room by rescuing one dog, you allow room for another dog to come in. Mm. Yeah, so. Yes. Okay. Also, a person who would rescue a dog, mm. they're going to have similar values to you. Yes. So the reason why I have you focus on a common interest is not only because you'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah, you, you have things that you can share. But it's also because you're going to attract, in other ways, people who have the same values as you. So the perfect example of this is I studied abroad in China. And so China is not a typical destination for most study abroad students. And when I got to China, I was the first time really in college where I was like, oh my gosh, I actually feel that little hint of belonging. It's where I met my husband. Um, so I got there and I was like, oh, like all these people were attracted to this very specific program. They were out of their comfort zone. They came from the United States. They'd picked some interest in China. They either were majoring in China. And so it, had, it attracted people with very similar values. And I met my husband on that trip as a junior in college. And that was purely based on the fact that I started with a very single kernel of interest and it grew into something better. So you attract the same kind of values when you focus on that common interest. The good news is also people make us healthy. So if there isn't reason enough to want to have really good relationships in our life, when you, when you spend as much time with people that you are like, these are a couple things that happen. One, in a, one study, people who receive emotional support during the six months after a heart attack were three times more likely to survive. That is an incredible way to, I mean, talk about prescribing healing, right? To say, I want you to take these medications and I also want you to spend three hours with people who you love every day, right? Like that's a prescription to keep us heart healthy. Participating in a breast cancer support group doubled a woman's life expectancy post-surgery. Doubled. Just joining a support group. Researchers have found that social support has as much effect on life expectancy as smoking, high blood pressure, obesity, and regular physical activity. So we don't list a sangha or a social group on our health and well-being list, right? We floss, we work out, we go to the gym, we walk for 20 minutes, but actually the thing that can affect us the most is having these relationships that fill us. That is because... They think, so when oxytocin is produced, it actually repairs micro-tears in the heart. 
So they think that oxytocin is actually a restorative kind of a chemical. So it doesn't only make us feel good, it also makes us heal faster. Third step. So focusing on a common interest, thinking about qualitative, not quantitative. Three, how can you thrive with them? So I think that when you think about the people or the kind of people that you want to meet, what is a way? What are things that you can do? What, how, when, and why? What are things you can do with them that would help you thrive, that would help you have those substantive conversations, that would help you look forward to seeing them? Not all kinds of experiences are created equal. So very quickly, I want to know who pops into your head when I ask some of these questions. You ready? And you can actually write these down at home. I know that who you know, calling them out on camera is a little bit intimidating, so I'll have you write them down as I call them out. Who makes you better? So in your life, when you hang out with them or you see them or you talk to them, who makes you feel like a better person? And also, who do you think you make better? Right? Who do you contribute to their well-being? Second, who challenges you in a good way? Who pushes you a little bit out of your comfort zone? Just a little nudge out of your comfort zone. And who do you challenge in a good way? Who do you push out of their comfort zone? Because a Sangha is not just about what you receive. It's also about what you give. And lastly, who makes you think? Who makes you think about topics that you usually don't consider? Who brings up questions and ideas that challenge your way of thinking? And when you are talking to people, who do you give aha moments to? Right? So when you're with, have you ever had someone say to you, huh, never thought about it that way? Or gosh, I never, never, that never occurred to me. Who have you done that for? Those are the people I want you to think about, either specifically to approach for your Sangha, or also just the kind of people. Like maybe uh, when I was doing this course in the beta version, someone said, you know, I was at a conference two years ago, and I realized that I was having so many of these thought conversations. I think I need to go to that conference again, because somehow that conference attracts the people who fall into this. So it also can be, when was there a time in your life or a place where some of these things came up, if it's not just a specific person? Last thing, how can you think about structure? So this is kind of an optional step because sometimes if you're with a best friend, you're not going to always bring in structure into your best friendship, right? You're not going to be like, now we're going to do an icebreaker. <laughs> I mean, you could. I do that with my friends, but <laughs> that doesn't work for everyone. Um, so here's what I want you to think about for structure. Here's a couple things to consider. When do you do it? So is it a kind of thing where you decide to do every Friday or every last Sunday or once a year we do a big camping trip? Where do you do it? Maybe sometimes in your comfort zone, in your hometown is not it. Maybe it actually is going away somewhere. Maybe it is trying new restaurants, tying it with a mastery area and saying, oh, I'm really high open. I want a partner to go and try the best taco places around town, right? And I'm going to find that person to be a taco adventurer with me, right? Making it up. What do you do? So when you're actually together, and I love free-flowing conversations, but I found that in awesome clubs, when I did these masterminds with creative professionals, if we didn't have a structure, we didn't go deep. We tended to kind of stick to like, how's work? How's the wife? How's everything going? Lovely conversations, but we weren't going to the substance. So what I did is I added five questions to those awesome clubs that we ask every time. Of course, we have free flow conversation before and after, but I found that that structure helped me go a little deeper and my best kind of, oh, I love this group moments come usually during those questions. Lastly, how many people? Can be one, can be as big as 10, right? This is something for you to decide how many is in that group. I also want you to consider some of the exercises and tools I've already given you. 
Look at your chart of skills. Can you find some mastery areas to go with? Is there something in your happiness chart that you either want to continue doing or start doing that could maybe contribute to a Sangha? Your playstorming list, of course. Is there a partner in joy that can do them? And lastly, with your cause champions. A couple case studies I want to give you from previous happiness students. So one of them, <laughs> common interest was firefighters blowing off steam. I love that. Pun. Pun? Is that pun? Yeah, pun. Yeah. See, I thought of you as soon as I thought of that. Yes, it works already. Um, so firefighters blowing off steam that after work time, qualitative, they decided it was 10 volunteer firefighters, and they all lived near each other. So his kind of thrive thing was geography, and they used the happiness chart where um, he's very competitive and he loves playing pool, but he never got to play, right? He didn't have a pool table. So they actually set up pool tournaments to do this uh, every, I think, I want to say it was like once a month or once every three weeks, something like that. But they set up these big pool tournaments. So he was able to increase the number of hours in his happiness chart for pool and also hanging out with people. I will say one other thing about formalizing. So I have a really wonderful group of friends in Portland. We are wacky and crazy. If you follow me on Instagram, we're always in costume. One of my favorite things is to dress up. So we have like toga Christmas parties and like you know, random, like, Grecian goddess Easter parties. You know, we have all, we, any excuse to dress up. And we, just, we fa- figured out that if we didn't formalize when we got together, it often went a couple weeks without getting together. So every third Thursday is epic friend group mealtime. <laughs> That's what we call it. And we actually named our text group epic friend group mealtime. And so every Thursday we rotate who gets to pick a restaurant. And we do these kind of supper clubs, and we always have a discussion question. So this is a casual group of friends of couples that I see, but adding just a little bit of structure, it made it so that we didn't let the time go. And then having the discussion question is also really fun because we rotate who picks it. And so it always produces very intense discussions with everyone. Another case study. So adult, young adult book club. (laughs) So adults who like to read YA fiction but don't want to feel silly reading YA fiction get together. Qualitative, it's five passionate readers five readers who read avidly and quickly all the time. They thrive, actually Goodreads, you were talking about Goodreads earlier today, the Goodreads Forum, they actually share book lists and reading lists. And um, I'm actually, you created a book list for the happiness course on Goodreads. I'm gonna share that, I'll tweet it out. So if you wanna follow our Goodreads Forum, you can. Um, And their structure was to do one book per month and they do five questions. They assign someone a book and they have to come with five questions to the group to have a really cool discussion question. Right, real easy way to add structure. Another one, so retired teachers. These are all retired teachers in their swan song retiring, and they decided, it's only three of them. They call themselves the Happy Hunters. They took the course together. Um, they wanted to base it on their cause champion. So I mentioned those, the librarian earlier. They decided their cause champion, they, together, the three of them focus on literacy. And so they actually do an after-school reading group with students. And so this has been, like, this is the best part of their afternoon. I think they do it, like, three times a week. And they have this amazing reading group together and then also with students. Wonderful way to combine the two. Remember here, this is an experimental mindset. So what I caution you in creating a sangha is don't jump in too fast. Right? Like, if you have an idea of someone in mind, you have a topic that you're kind of like, I think that could work. You don't have to send out a formalized email telling people that you are going to now create a sangha with them. Get together kind of casually. See how it feels. 
See, as you're talking, bring up the idea of a book club or doing a cause champion. That experimental mindset goes a long way here, so you don't have to feel like you have to sign up for a Sangha right away. This is actually one of the few lessons that I will not be giving you deadlined homework because I'd much rather you play around with this idea over the next few months than tell me tomorrow you have your Sangha and you've already sent out an evite. You can do that if you know that, but I want you to play around with the people a little bit. Another thing to think about here is your teams. So a lot of us work with people. You might have an existing team in your life that you want to dial up the I belong, right? Maybe they're not your only saying, but maybe you want to have a little bit of that belonging with an existing team. First thing you can do to utilize this team kind of I belonging, the oxytocin, is do start, stop, continue with your group. So in my team, my science people team, we do start, stop, continue. I learned so much about my team from that exercise. I learned about their values. I learned about their skills. I asked them, you know, if you want to start something for the company, what would you do? Someone tells me, oh, I love Instagram and I love building graphics. I would love to build graphics for Science of People. Great, right? I learned that one of my team members makes amazing infographics, like incredible infographics. She's like, can I go back and add some new infographics to like our old posts? Yes, right? So how can you utilize everyone's skills? Make them do the, the chart. Print out a copy of the mastery chart for them and have them do it. Second, can you generate a little anticipation? So is there something you can do in your group, your existing team? This could be a family or a professional team. What is coming up that the group itself can get excited for? For example, I was just talking to two of my team members on Tuesday about Creative Live. And I was like, I think that after Creative Live, we are all going to need a spa day. And they were like, oh, yes. And I was like... We are going to go to this spa that I know. We're all going to get foot baths and massages, and we're going to do it as soon as Creative Live is over. I'm excited about it. I'm also generating a little bit of anticipation for them because they do so much work when Creative Live is live every day. So that's a way that we're trying to generate a little bit of anticipation. Adding a cause champion. So think about with your professional team, is there a cause that you can add to your professional goals? Can your business give back to something or donate to something? Can you ask about the team's nonprofit angle? I think that can also bring some of that altruism into our teams. And lastly, how can you experiment with new ideas? That start area, if you can playstorm with them a little bit, I think it also adds a little bit of that hope and curiosity to your teams. Pep talk. I think that this is kind of an anxiety-provoking day for some people. I don't know, does anyone sort of like worried about finding their group, I will not make you raise your hands. I was worried about this when I first got it. So my pep talk for you is you do not have to rush this. I think it can take a while to find those relationships that truly nourish us. So be kind to yourself. Be gentle to yourself at home. Don't push yourself to go too fast. If you are like me and you are a recovering awkward person and you feel like, I don't know how to talk to people, I need a little more help with the people skills science, I asked Creative Live if I could have a discount coupon, and they said yes. Thank you, Creative Live. So in your workbook, and even if you didn't get the workbook, if you use Vanessa 15, you will get 15% off my Mastery People Skills course or my Power of Body Language course if you feel like you need a little bit of extra help on this lesson. Here are our challenges. All I want you to do today is pick a common interest, right? What are, what's one or two areas you think could possibly generate some of those connections? Two. I want you to reach out to one person. And this doesn't have to be official, like I'm contacting you about a Sangha that I'm starting. <laughs> I just want you to reach out to one person and see if they would be willing to dabble in that common interest with you. 
And then just begin experimenting. Maybe schedule a dinner on the calendar. Maybe join a meetup group that you're interested in. Maybe sit in and listen to a, a group that you were curious about or a cause you were curious about. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye